Proctor here with some announcements before we get into this week's episode. Strange Loop is coming up. Strange Loop is a multidisciplinary conference that brings together the developers and thinkers building tomorrow's technologies in fields such as programming languages, databases, distributed systems, AI and machine learning, security, and the web. It will be held in St. Louis, Missouri on September 28th through the 30th at the Peabody Opera House. Visit thestrangeloop.com to keep updated and for more information. PWLConf 2017 is the second full-day Papers We Love conference, co-located with the pre-conference events at Strange Loop in St. Louis, Missouri on September 28th. Last year's event was a great success, with talks ranging from designing network systems to game engines. The conference intends to bring academia and industry within reach of one another, hoping to foster stronger collaboration and mutual appreciation across respective fields. Tickets are $40 with an optional donation, and free if you're a student or recipient of a Strange Loop Opportunity Grant. Keep an eye out for updates on pwlconf.org. ElmConf is returning to St. Louis on September 28, 2017 for a day of learning, speaking, and connecting with the Elm language community. ElmConf will once again be co-locating with Strange Loop, and the conference will run on Strange Loop's pre-conference day. For tickets and more information, visit www.elm-conf.us. OpenF Sharp will be taking place the 28th and 29th of September in San Francisco. Taking place in the heart of San Francisco, OpenF Sharp features two days of F-Sharp talks and workshops with world-class speakers and a unique opportunity to connect with the F-Sharp community and some of its key contributors, while learning about the latest developments in the F-Sharp ecosystem. For more information and register, visit openfsharp.org. RacketCon is October 7th and 8th at the University of Washington, and includes one day of speakers and one day of collaborative hacking. Their keynote speakers are the CS professors, Dan Friedman, co-author of the classic reference, Essentials of Programming Languages, and Wilbur, inventor of Minicanner. Details and tickets are available through the webpage at con.racket-lang.org. Celebrate the 10th anniversary of the release of Closure, October 12th through the 14th, at the Closure Con in Baltimore, Maryland. The schedule and speakers have been announced, and registration is open. For more information, visit 2017.closure-conj.org. Lambda World is back, taking place in Cadiz, Spain, on 26th and 27th of October. Early bird tickets are sold out, but student tickets and regular price tickets are still available. For more information, visit www.lambda.world. Code Mesh will be taking place the 8th and 9th of November. Keynote speakers David Turner and Margot Seltzer are already confirmed. Speakers have been announced, and early bird ticket sales have started. For more details and register, visit www.codemesh.io. MoonConf will be taking place in Phoenix, Arizona, November 9th through the 11th. MoonConf is a three-day conference for the functional programming community to learn and celebrate together. There will be single-track talks on Thursday and Friday, and an all-day open space unconference on Saturday. For more information, visit www.moonconf.org. Closure Sync is a new conference by the creator of PurelyFunctional.tv, Eric Norman. Set in New Orleans in February 15th and 16th of 2018, Closure Sync is all about the craft, business, and culture of closure. Go to closuresync.com, that's closure, S-Y-N-C.com, to sign up and for more information. Lambda Days 2018 will be taking place the February 22nd and 23rd in Krakow, Poland. 2018 Lambda Days Call for Papers is now open. Submit your proposal for a chance to join Jose Valim, Feline Hermans, Philip Wadler, Heather Miller, and others on their stage in February. The call for talks is open until October 30th, and a research track is available as well. The very last early bird tickets are on sale. Get them while you can. And if you don't manage to catch the very early bird tickets, don't worry. Early bird ticket sales start on October 1st and will last for a month. For more information, to submit your talk proposal and register, visit www.lambdadays.org. And if you know of any other conferences around functional programming, Email contact at functionalgeekery.com, and I'll be happy to announce them. Also, some of you have mentioned that you would like to show your support for Functional Geekery. In that vein, Functional Geekery now has a Patreon page. If that is how you would like to show your support, you can find out more at www.patreon.com slash fngeekery. And a giant virtual hug goes out to all those who are already supporting the podcast. Lastly, if you're enjoying Functional Geekery, please help spread the word. If you leave a rating and or review on iTunes, or your favorite podcast directory, or even share your favorite episodes on social media, I need your help to spread the word about Functional Geekery. And if there are any guests or topics that you want to hear from or about, 
please reach out and email guests at functionalgeekery.com and I'll put them on my notes for future episode ideas. Thank you for listening and for all your support. Welcome to Functional Geekery. I'm Russ Proctor, and this week with us we have David Kuntz. David, would you mind telling everyone a little bit about yourself? Hi. Well, I'm a sort of relatively new convert to functional programming with a fairly long background in just sort of your average corporate line of business app type programming. I've always loved game development. That's kind of what got me started initially. And I've tried to apply functional programming to that realm, which has been a little tricky. So I kind of do a little bit of that in the languages that will work with that, which tend not to be functional languages, and then learn as much about functional programming as I can. And people might be recognizing your voice after listening to this. I'm sure we have a cross-segment of the community of listeners of you are one of the crew of the LambdaCast. So that's what puts you on the radar. And for anybody who's like, that voice sounds familiar, that's probably where you're hearing it, if it didn't come to mind offhand. But wanted to get you on to talk about your background, dig in a little bit more other than the topics that you discuss, but get to know you, get to share with your ideas and some of that motivation for starting a podcast. But let's start with your background of just how did you get into programming and set the stage for software development? And then we'll evolve into the what put functional programming on your radar in a little bit. Okay. So like some people out there, what hesitant to say most people out there, I do fit the stereotype of the white kid who got the computer when I was 16, I think, got my own computer and was able to kind of go to town with learning. Around that time, I also got the access to the internet, and I was able to really start exploring some of the stuff I had done earlier with like QBasic, very, very simple things. And I was able to start learning C, and that was sort of my introduction to programming. So I got a book, Windows Game Programming in C++, and it was like a horrible dump of hundreds of pages of DirectX, like C++ code that I just typed in until I could get the thing to compile and then changed very few things and was very happy that I was able to write something that could compile and I could show to my friends. So that was sort of my introduction to programming, but I mostly set it down because there wasn't a lot of people around that knew anything about programming or were even interested in it. And I actually went down a fairly IT-centric route. I was a network administrator, got Cisco certified, worked at a couple ISPs, was kind of going down that route. And then I'd always had a love for games. And I saw an ad in some game magazine advertising the fact that you could get a degree in game programming. And I thought, wow, that's like a thing that you can do. Like you can, you know, just learn how to do game programming. And that sort of re... I don't know, it's, it's almost like it opened the possibility in my mind that that's something that you could do, which seems silly in retrospect. Like, of course, people do this all the time. That's how do you think games get made. But to me, it just it seemed like it had never been a real possibility. So I packed up and I moved out to Phoenix and I went to a little tech college out here and got my degree in software engineering with an emphasis in game programming and realized once I got here, I actually knew a lot more than I thought I knew. <laughs> and a lot of my classes were fairly straightforward. So I kind of zipped through that real quick. But very quickly came to feel that the games industry, at least here in Phoenix and, and more in general, was not a particularly great place to work. Crunch is the norm. It's sort of just an accepted thing and horrible working conditions. And I didn't want to do that. So I was going to make indie games. So that sort of set me on this path of I'm going to have a day job where I make money and then I'm going to have a passion for games on the side. And that has continued for the last 10, 12 years since I've been out of school doing that. I've gone through periods of regular development through Java and Ruby and C-sharp and JavaScript, a whole bunch of languages, and then little bouts of professional game development. So I did a bout at ASU and then also with a startup, both using Unity, which leveraged the C-sharp that I knew. So I've kind of bounced between like business apps to make money and game development when I can swing it. And you start with IT, you move into programming and software development through your game building degree in software engineering with they focus on games. At what point did functional programming get put on your radar at first? Was there a course? Some colleges have a course that briefly mention it. You may or may not understand it at that point, depending on how much insight and experience you have or how well the teacher does. What was that first experience? Was that somewhere in the in your university courses or was that elsewhere? What put that on your radar? Sure. So yeah, nothing while I was in school. The school is very, it's almost vocational in its focus. I mean, it's a bachelor's degree, but it was very focused on sort of getting you a job. And so they didn't really touch anything that wasn't directly applicable to 
either a mainstream software engineering job or some sort of game development type job. But afterwards, I was actually my second job. I was doing Java. I was learning about how web apps work, writing backend services. And I still wanted to learn. I still was like very, very hungry to learn. So I teach myself Python and then later Ruby. And I kept seeing on discussion boards this structure interpretation of computer programs. And I'm like, oh, what's that? That sounds interesting. And I had a group that I organized. There'll be a pattern here of, of organizing learning activities. <laughs> but I had this group that we called ourselves the Code Mavens. And we would meet once a week to kind of just work on stuff, to hack on stuff. And part of that became, let's go through something. And I suggested SICP. And so we got the videos from the 80s, the ones that had done, I think, at Stanford, sort of a, a classroom presentation of the material with Sussman and Abelson. And they were going through and, and we watched those videos and we followed along in the book. And we got through probably like eight chapters or something like that, not terribly far into the book. And people lost interest and we didn't have anyone who really knew what they were doing. So we, we kind of fizzled. But it was enough to say, huh, this is interesting. This is very different. We don't understand why it's useful. And certainly it didn't feel very connected. I couldn't write any game in it. And this has been like a big sticking point with me with functional programming is, okay, that's great. Here's this, say I use common list or scheme which is what they're using in the course. But I have to worry about things like garbage collection and how do I bind to OpenJL or DirectX. And there's, there's all these kind of issues where I think this sounds really interesting, but how do I make it do what I want to do, the specific application that I want to do? So that was pretty tough. So I set it back down, went back to sort of life. I did a startup where we used Ruby and Java. And there was a guy who worked with us who was in Haskell at the time. And <laughs> it seems like that would be the perfect point in which I would have like jumped on Haskell. But he... Unfortunately, for my sake, was utterly unconvincing as to why we should use Haskell. So I failed to get the message and understand what he was really saying and carried on my merry way. And it was actually much later, it wasn't until just a few years ago, four or five years ago, that I finally got tired of failing. So I had had enough projects where I was in charge and I got to make all the decisions and, and there was no one to blame for the architecture but me. And I was still failing. So this led me to like a pretty deep moment of reflection of if you keep doing it the way you think it should be done and it keeps not working out, it's not like these projects like just imploded or something, but they always got to the same point. Everything was harder than it felt like it should be to change. And I'm sure everyone who's worked on a sophisticated, large OO code base has had this problem. There's like a graph that goes with this, which is like a, a graph of open uh, incidents that are open versus incidents that are closed. And it's called the sad graph of software death, where you hit this point where incidents getting reported keeps going up and up and up, and the rate of closing gets slower and slower and slower because it's harder to continue to make changes to your code base. And I had experienced something like that. And I just had tried everything I could think of. Every MV something, like MVVM or MVP or MVC or all these variations of things that were supposed to solve my problems, and none of them were working. And so I kind of went on a like a quest. Okay, world, I've tried all everything the experts have told me should fix my problems architecturally. None of them are working. My projects are still having issues. I'm willing to listen to anyone who will tell me that they have something better. They're selling something better. And this led me to functional programming. And initially, that was through F Sharp. So initially, so I tried this list thing with SICP, and I had seen like Learn New Haskell and stuff like that. But I just bounced off it. It was so foreign. And again, it didn't feel like something I could use. Then I ran to this book, Real World Functional Programming by Thomas Pietrick and John Skeet. And the great thing about real world functional programming is it starts you in C Sharp and it just talks about, hey, instead of writing our C Sharp like this, what if we wrote it like that instead? And the this is the OO style and the that is the functional style. Let's just write some static functions or some static methods and pass just pure data to them. Hmm, this is interesting. What does this do for us? And so it was this very nice, gentle introduction where they built up a pattern that felt appealing. I'm like, oh, this is cool. I could dig this. But it then became awkward. And that's when they did the great switch where it's like, wow, this is kind of getting awkward. Would it be nice if there's a language that just did this for you? Oh, look, there's F sharp over here. Isn't this nice? And so I was able to jump over and by mapping the concepts between the C sharp version and F sharp version, I was able to understand enough of what was going on that the syntax didn't preclude me from sort of making progress and gaining some understanding into this. And that sort of got me into the FP world. I was able to say, okay, I kind of have a little more than a toe. I kind of have a foot in there. And I, I don't know that I could build big, sophisticated things yet. Games are certainly still a problem because of runtime performance issues. But in general, I felt like I could probably make something happen here. 
And that's when I really started to shift my OO. I'm still in OO code bases. That's when I started to change my style and really push more for the, the kinds of things that I advocate for in robo functional programming, where we had lots of classes with all static methods that were actually pure functions. And we had a lot more just pure data objects. And we just sort of pushed things in that direction a little bit more while still living within the constraints of C-sharp. And that kind of got me down this path. And then I went back to Haskell, kind of revisited that, had some success with it. And then really when Elm came on the scene, I was able to sort of fully embrace that syntax and those ideas. And then eventually was able to bootstrap all the way up to Haskell and PureScript. And as you go on through your software development journey, you said you were applying a bunch of these patterns, you're applying these practices, and you're pulling from other things. Were there any hints of things that were working? And I say this as someone who kind of had a Lisp course in college, but didn't really get it. Saw Ruby, and when I saw the blocks and how some of the examples of the blocks were done, there was a little bit of a light bulb moment, not the complete shift to pure functional programming, but saying, hey, there are patterns here that you can extract out with blocks, or I noticed the static methods become easier to test if I do them right. Were there any of those things that kind of set that foundation that after you started looking through the real-world functional programming book, kind of clicked because you're like, okay, I can see exactly how that was, and I was feeling that pain, or I already started to go down this route and dip my toe in it without realizing what I was doing. Were there any of those moments as you were going down that route? Yeah, so that actually harkens back to my Java days. I remember distinctly, I don't know why this memory sticks out, but I remember sitting there in my cube and I was writing a for loop and it has to have been like the 12th or 13th for loop I'd written that day. It just was, and that's maybe not that many, but for me on that day, it just seemed like this is like the 12th time I've written what feels like this exact same thing. Why is there no way for me to extract it? And I started looking around like, is there, and, and I am pretty sort of obnoxiously fearless with bending a language. So I just started looking into AOP and thinking, like I pulled out Aspect J and was like, is there like a point cut that I can put in here, surround this with to kind of auto-generate this thing? And of course that would never fly with my team, but it just felt like there's gotta be a way to make this better. So I guess in every language I've been in, I kept saying, there's gotta be a better way. This is, this is ridiculous. Which usually leads me to like reflection or something like that in an OO style language to solve this problem. So yeah, there was a hint of that when I got to Ruby. It actually didn't super click for me, but when I got to C-sharp with Link, that's when it felt like, ah, okay, this feels different. And in Ruby, I never really got higher-order functions. It just never really clicked with me that that's what we were doing. But in C-sharp, being able to pass basically any function that matched the delegate signature really drove home, oh, you can just reuse any function that matches here. You can just plop it in, and it will work. That was pretty important, I think, in this journey. So I big thumbs up to the inclusion of Link as a very gentle way to bring people along to the FP concepts. And I ask because it's one of those interesting questions to see what kind of stuff triggers and helps set that stage for people who may just be dipping their toes in, hearing about some of this stuff fully in an OO world and just saying, and for me, it was Ruby with the file open and having a bunch of database connections that you had to sign around the try catch block and make sure you close it or use the with clauses in .NET, and then say, oh yeah, if you just do, you could take all that set up teardown stuff, put it in, before Link even, before Link was as big as it was, and hearing everybody's different experiences about what are some of those pain points and insights that you have that starts to set that foundation that makes it seem not as scary. And you mentioned Link, and I don't know how many people come in, and if you came in with Link, already existing or if you were in .NET before Link got introduced and seeing the jump of going from Java or .NET pre-Link to, well, now you have Link and here's how you do it and trying to make that transition. So it's always interesting to hear those starting paths that kind of helps that everybody goes through this to some extent. And especially if you're going from the OO to FP and not in the full FP track straight out of the bat. Yeah, I came through the .NET 2 and then like around .NET 2.0 time. And so I saw that upgrade to 3.5 and Lambda's coming in. And it felt like all of a sudden .NET to me went from the language that was like, oh, it's Microsoft's version of Java to like, wow, this is like, this is different. This is substantially different in my mind of what we can do now. So yeah, that was a pretty definitive moment in shaking up what a language could be. And then you start 
looking at F-sharp. F-sharp was your kind of intro, you said, to actually understanding this concept. Did you take that back? And you mentioned game development as one of those things in doing Unity. Was that one of those things that you said, well, let's see how much I can push F-sharp on Unity to start getting an, an adjustment? Or was this a, I see this, I see some of these ideas. How did that transition go from seeing it in the book to starting to apply it before you even made it to Haskell and Elm and start to understand those concepts? So this was a very frustrating thing for me because at the time, your big game frameworks are Unreal, XNA, if you want to go that route, and Unity. And Unity, although it does use C-sharp, is on a custom version of Mono that's very old and is pretty inhospitable to F-sharp, even today even the the modern version of it in 2017, it is not something that works really well with F-sharp. So it was never actually very practical. And certainly on mobile, which is where a lot of Unity work is done, F-sharp is completely unusable. So F-sharp was not an option. I had to do it in C-sharp. And that led me back to, okay, well, what's the best I can do in C-sharp to apply these ideas without needing a new language? So I, was, I felt a little bit backed into a corner on that. I kept wanting to use other things, but you know, how do I use Haskell with Unity? How do I use F-Sharp with Unity or Elm with Unity? You can't, really. It's impractical from a commercial game development perspective. So I'm just stuck with what I have. I did look into other things like, well, maybe I could have Haskell FFI bind to Unreal. You know, Maybe we could do something like that. I actually think F-Sharp with XNA is probably doable. I didn't go down that route because XNA was never, although commercial games have been written in it, it was never a good solution for my team in terms of the options we had. With its editor and its asset store and the tools that are available there allowed us to get a lot done with just a few programmers. And that was always the situation I was in, both when I was working on projects at ASU and when I had my own startup doing game development. And so since you kind of touched on it, what were some of those lessons then takeaways from pulling them and applying them back into C Sharp? So you've got these ideas, you've seen them, you say, I can't do F Sharp. When you take them back to C Sharp, for people who haven't made that jump, and aside from the book and maybe some other tutorials, what are some of those things that you would kind of point people at as good points to start making that jump and solving some of those pain points that you feel with OO? But whatever it is, are there some of those easy wins that you think you would give as advice for people who are still in the, I'm doing OO in my day job and I've got to figure out a better way? Yeah, definitely. So even within the confines of Unity, and Unity is a little bit of a special case in that the objects that you're working with, you have no control over. You have to mutate them in place. You have no option. They're actually a C-sharp facade over a C++ object that exists in the C++ part of the app, and they expose into the .NET runtime, but you can't make your own version of it. You can't instantiate your own. So the idea of making a copy and then returning the copy so you don't mutate the original is completely off the table. That's not even an option for you. If you were in a pure C-sharp code base, you might have some options for that. Although I would be pretty scared about what you're doing to your garbage collector if you're creating new objects every frame, a whole bunch of them, especially on older .NET garbage collectors. They've gotten much better. And maybe certainly for a 2D game, I think that would be very passable these days, but not for a high-performance 3D game, which tends to be what I was working on. So people I was working with and talking about these ideas too, we kind of came to where the best we can do is have pure functions. That's like our step number one. So step one, let's just start writing pure functions wherever we can. So we started moving things into static classes, writing those as pure functions, and minimizing the degree to which we mutate it. So if we're going to mutate, let's mutate it in these few places, write pure functions when we can, and start just passing data around. And then we took all of the... In Unity, they have this like component system where you have data and some lifecycle functions. Well, they're methods. Like update, late update, awake, start, destroyed, undestroyed, things like that, things that might happen within the game. And you're supposed to, of course, write the code that is relevant to that component in those methods. And you might have a whole bunch of components attached to a certain game object. A game object's like a container form. So I wrote a library called Robot Arms, and Robot Arms allows you to leave just the data on the components and put all your logic somewhere else and kind of separate those two out so that you can at least have some control over. I can write pure-ish functions <laughs> as pure as possible in one spot and have data in the other spot, and we will keep those separate. So that's kind of the first step, I think, is try to separate those two things. The second step would be, depending on what your options are, I would start looking into the ability to pipeline things. 
the pipeline type operators. So if you've ever done any F sharp or Elm or Elixir, you know the pipe forward and pipe backward operator and how you can just chain the result of a previous computation into the next. Being able to do those kinds of things and link kind of gets you that feel, right? Like a lot of link is do a thing, map a thing, and then filter a thing and then map it again. Those sorts of chains to, to write in that style, to start thinking in those sort of data transformation pipeline style. And those two things were the biggest bang that I saw within a language like C-sharp and the restrictions that I had. And again, different people have different things, and I wasn't sure. Some people mentioned, start with testing, make your test pure. Other people have talked about, as you said, pure functions when you can, static functions. So it's, in, it's always interesting to hear what works for who and hear some of that stuff. So you get through, you start to push on to Haskell, you start to push on to Elm. As you started getting and diving deeper, F-sharp, I've heard, puts you a fair portion, but the difference between F-sharp and Haskell, I've heard, is about what I hear people describe as Haskell to Idris, where there's a lot that's in common, but there's a lot more constraints, which takes a mindset of just saying, okay, well, I have product in some types, but now I'm going to IO and other monad types and things that are proper first-class types. What was the transition as you went from F-sharp into Haskell as you were pushing down this route? And where did Elm fit in on that? And was that a couple of bounce-off Haskells? And until you got into Elm, then you were able to go Haskell. How did that whole transition work for you? That transition I would describe as very rough. Um, uh, This is before the Haskell book by Chris Allen had come out, which is a much more comprehensive introduction. And I would recommend if people are going to start, they start that route instead of the learning of Haskell. Although learning of Haskell, it gets a really super bad rap. I do think that at a very high level, it is useful. The problem is it it's sort of, you read it and you go, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. And you kind of surface level understand the whole thing. And then you get to the end and you go, okay, I'm going to write Hello World. How do I write Hello World again? You feel like there's a veneer of understanding with no substance underneath. So it's missing exercises and it's missing a lot of, exploration of an idea. It goes way too fast. So it's like the survey course that kind of introduces the idea of Haskell. So it kind of gets a bad rap. I don't think it's as bad as people say, but a much more comprehensive book like the Haskell book, I think is a better introduction to something like Haskell. Now, with that said, even an introduction like that, there's a lot of concepts. So like you were saying, you go from F sharp to Haskell being a big jump because yes, you're right. You have product types and some types, You have type signatures that are fairly close to the same, but higher kind of types, really the ability to express higher kind of types and use type classes to start writing functions in terms of the higher kind of types really, really threw me for for a long time. And that is sort of a blessing and a curse. Clearly, it is a more powerful mechanism than exists in F-sharp, and it allows you to express all kinds of very powerful reusable functions. So you're able to write things in terms of very abstract concepts. And I mean abstract here, not in the vague sense, but in the the absolutely precise, the Dijkstra sense of abstract, where the purpose of abstraction is not to be vague, but to create a new semantic layer in which we can be absolutely precise. And that's what Haskell does. If you look at any type signature, you may not know what all those parts are, but you can one by one substitute in the parts and work your way back to where you do know exactly what's going on. But when you're new, it just seems like gobbledygook. The first time I see a type with four type parameters, it's like, what the heck is going on here? This is crazy sauce. So that was very rough. And that was mostly just kind of jousting at the windmill, <laughs> like endlessly and failing and saying, I, okay, I think I'm getting it. No, I'm not getting it. And then going back to Elm. And Elm was interesting because it emphasized the pure function concept. It emphasized pipelining. And, and this is, I mean, F-sharp has pipelining as a big part of it as well. But I don't know, something about Elm, I was able to connect it to the JavaScript that I knew. It just felt very safe and familiar. And I felt like I really understood it. And that was a footing to stand on. Because Elm is in the F-sharp category of no higher kind of types. So it also doesn't have any of these big multi-parameter, well, it has multi-parameter types, but like a four or five parameter type. It won't have those sorts of things. And it certainly won't have functions that take monad plus or something which is itself a type class, it won't have those kinds of things. So I don't know that Elm is a better way than F-sharp or F-sharp's a worse way than Elm. I wouldn't say that. It just, for me personally, 
by kind of bouncing off Haskell, landing on Elm, feeling confident, like, oh, I got this. Okay, that let me take another joust at Haskell. And that time I was successful. So I don't know if it's something in there clicked or if it's just I had gone at enough times that finally I broke through. Maybe that confidence of Haskell and Elm are similar enough, but if you can pick up Elm easily enough, is it that confidence that says, well, now I've got two of these under my belt. I can get a third kind of thing potentially. Right. Yeah. But after F sharp and Elm, maybe I can get Haskell down. And then from there, also PureScript came into the mix. But Haskell and PureScript are at least syntax wise similar enough and they express the same concepts that a lot of that learning was able to transfer between them. And as you bounce back and forth, if you're doing Elm, were you able to take a full advantage of Elm? Or was this one of those things that like F sharp a little bit and like Haskell? It was one of those things you're learning, you're not really able to take advantage of it in your day in and day out to be able to get a good grasp on these things. You're having to fit it in where you can. Elm being a JavaScript-based language, was that something you were able to kind of fit in and get adoption from the rest of your team and be able to take advantage of this more fully versus just having a bunch of side projects you're playing with to learn this? Okay, so for Elm, about the time that I was getting into Elm, was the time that I started working on a Electron app. So this is JavaScript in Node as a desktop app. This was the Git Kraken graphical Git client. And they, they were built on Electron. And there we were able to at least play with the idea. The team lead, one of the reasons he hired me on is he was interested in bringing more functional into the team. So that was a super appealing reason to go work there. And we were able to explore it. And Elm, unfortunately, at this point, <laughs> did not fit very well for us because we wanted to bring it in very piecemeal. And Elm really wants to own its own world and then communicate through ports or, or some other mechanism out to the outside world. And we needed something that we could very gradually layer in. So we looked at Elm and I kind of steered them away from like TypeScript or Flow. That's the direction they were originally looking to go. And I really wanted to try to see what we could do in terms of a functional language. So we looked at Elm and we looked at PureScript and ultimately I did a PureScript TypeScript lowdown of what would our code converted look like in both of these. And I was able to show that with PureScript, mostly through the help of the community on the FP chat Slack community and specifically Matt Parsons on there, I was able to show how we could use some of the fancy type stuff that only exists in PureScript and like Haskell and not in Elm. We could encode certain invariants. And one of those invariants was we're a Git client, and it's very important that you don't try to do two Git operations at the same time from different parts of your UI. Because if you do that, you can break your Git repo. Because we were operating not through the command line client, but through a library, through GitHub's library called libgit. It's a C library. And it's great because it can do very low-level Git operations, things that are much more discrete than you could ever get through the command line. But it also means that you can blow your foot off. It's a foot gun. And that's fantastic. It's very powerful. It was great for the product. But if we tried to do two Git operations at the same time, and they were the right kinds of Git operations, we could corrupt your Git database. And that was scary. So we don't want to do that. So we're very, very careful about that. But what my pitch was, was that, uh, hey, we could actually embed that in the type of our functions such that it requires a lock. And only by acquiring a lock can we sort of change the type into one that is satisfied by the application. So functions that do dangerous things have this type in them that's called a, an index lock. And there's a function that can consume the index lock out of the type and remove it that actually does the locking operation. And much like the thing that you described earlier, the using block in C Sharp, where it sets something up, does your logic, and then guarantees the release of the resource that you've acquired at the beginning, or the, you know, it performs the cleanup. It was the same sort of thing. So we had a, a locking function that you could pass the action you wanted to do in, it would acquire the lock and run your code that required the lock, thus satisfying the types, and they all lined up. And that was cool. That was a very interesting use of this that I thought I think was very practical to a lot of people. The problem was that the actual <laughs> usage of it from a syntax, from a, I have to type this in as a person who only knows JavaScript, proved to be very difficult in that team. And so JavaScript won out, and we ended up going with Flow. We got some pure script in there and we were able to go with it. And I had a huge learning experience. That was fantastic. I was able to use it in production. It was my day job to write pure script for a period of time. And then eventually the team sort of said, we're not comfortable moving forward with this. And it got pulled out. So that, that's kind of the most that I've used a functional language in production was that experience. And we've kind of danced around it, but you're touching on it. There is folding some of these ideas back in. So 
building this idea in PureScript, showing it versus TypeScript, getting it in, getting adoption. You're having to build this adoption and build, as you said, your recurring theme, some of this community around this stuff. What were some of those stages that set that community? Because now you're working on the sharing community and you're taking a lot of these ideas that you've learned and working to explain them to others and having people as sounding boards of early on that aren't familiar with some of the terms. What was that path of going out and saying, well, now it's time to do some community building around these concepts as well? Is that a, it helps me learn by teaching or it forces me to have a study plan. What was some of the stuff there that set you down on that route? Yeah. So the first thing I did in my campaign to convert the company to using (laughs) pure functional languages was to start a functional programming meetup. I had run meetups in the past, the Ruby meetup, the Java meetup at various points. So I started up a functional programming meetup and got that going and got some of our members who are more on the interested side, or at least the curious side, to come attend and be at those. I did a lot of Thursday, we had like a lunch and learn, and I presented on a whole host of topics from sort of the Lambda calculus done in JavaScript to monoids and functors and monads, things like that. So I did sort of internal campaigning, but then I also really wanted to build a community more broadly. So I started the meetup and started doing that. And then a little bit after that, I was having conversations with friends of mine that I worked with in the past and that I play games with online pretty regularly. And a lot of us are programmers. We're talking about programming. And these conversations come up. And one of them was interested, but he didn't understand how it worked. He didn't understand how it applied. But he was interested enough. And it seemed like a really good opportunity to start a podcast, to do something more intentional in terms of education. Because the meetups are okay. You, I mean, meetups are just a different medium. You have a community. You're trying to get people face-to-face talking to each other about different things. I wanted something a little more pedagogical. I wanted to say, I want to take this big topic, this somewhat impenetrable topic from most people's perspective, whether you agree that it actually is more complex than OO or not, based on how it's positioned in our society, our programming culture, it feels impenetrable. And I wanted to break that down. So I built up this mind map and invited people to participate in that. And we kind of built up all these ideas and these concepts. And we sat down, we said, okay, let's just start attacking these one at a time. And so I got two co-hosts, to come help me with that. One who does functional programming in JavaScript and one who had never done functional programming before. And the three of us kind of got started and we represent different levels of experience in different areas. And we hoped that would give rise to different voices. We wanted the audience to have a voice at whatever level they're at, that we were asking questions or saying things that could spark something in their mind. So that was kind of the intention there. And to directly go after topics in a specific order to build up to understanding. And how did those meetups and brown bags, lunch and learns, whatever that's called, or whatever you call that at your company, whoever you are, meetups is different because the people going there are going there because they're actually invested and interested. A couple of people may be drugged by a friend or another coworker that says, hey, come check this out. There's something interesting here. I think you might like it. Some of the brown bags and lunch and learns may just be feel more required. Like, I'm going to be the one or two people who don't go to this, so I'm not as invested. So I may be showing up just to have a presence. What were some of those lessons from both the lunch and learn kind of stuff and the meetups that kind of set that foundation for creating this mind map, figuring out how you actually need to go represent this when you take it to the podcast of and build out Lambda Cast? What were some of those lessons there? Okay, you're absolutely right. Those audiences are different. People who tend to meet up are intrinsically motivated at some level. I guess they could be drugged by a friend, but most of them are intrinsically motivated. They want to come and learn about something. So for them, it's mostly meeting them where they're at, figuring out what's the experience level with our group, what is the kind of content that best serves them. And for them, we started out with presentations and we kind of had a mixed response We had members signing up to talk about what they've done in their companies. And and that was very exciting, right? Seeing, oh, wait, there's other people in the Valley like doing functional programming. That's really cool. It felt like maybe I could do this too. This is within range. But that's really hard to keep up. And it tends to be kind of all over the place. So we actually transitioned into let's just build something as a group every month. Let's sit down and mob program some small application. Because I saw a lot of people who'd show up every month. And I'd be like, oh, cool. What what have you been working on? And it's like, eh. 
I don't really had time for anything. So like they were interested in functional programming, but they hadn't written a single line of functional code in the last month. And I just thought, oh, that's terrible. We got to get, we got to break that. We got to get you over your hump to where you can do useful things in this language. And then you can actually consider it for your job or your side project. So we just started doing hands-on mob programming every month. And we've seen a shift in who attends a little bit and very good participation from the people who are coming. And I feel like people are starting to solidify. And I'm hearing stories from people where they say, at work last week, I did this thing and it was really cool. And it was just like the thing we had done kind of in Elm because we're using Elm as the front end language and then we'll do Haskell as the back end language. It was like kind of like the thing I had done and we'd done in Elm, but I, I figured out how to do it in C Sharp and it was really cool and it worked perfectly the first time and was easy to test and, and all that kind of stuff. For the brown bags, I was trying to be very like um, tactical <laughs> in what I was doing. I was trying to convince people. I did have an agenda where with the meetups, I don't have nearly the same kind of thing, more just fostering a community. So there I was trying to show how the language wasn't scary, how it was useful, and how these concepts tied into things that we already did, and most specifically, problems we had. So I did a brown bag on maybes instead of nulls. And that just planted in people's heads the idea that you could have a world without nulls, and it didn't explode. Nulls are actually not required in any way, shape, or form. And then I could point out that in Flow, nulls are treated as optionals. They're treated like maybes. That's the decision Flow has made. And TypeScript 2 wasn't out at the time, but TypeScript 2 has a flag where you can make that default. So it's not just me saying this, like Facebook is saying this. And certainly they had more credibility, not credibility, but they had more weight than I did. So the brand bags were more focused at trying to address specific pain points we had in our application that I felt like were big enough pain points for them that they wouldn't argue that that was an issue. And they'd be more interested in, ooh, I didn't know we could have a solution for that. And then say, this comes from functional. Do you want to know more about this (laughs) magical land of unicorns and rainbows where these ideas have come out of? There's more good stuff over here. And kind of tempt them along. So it's sort of like the laying the skittles in a line that leads you you down the road. It, It was an attempt at that. And were any of those things, as you went both the brown bags and the meetup groups, anything in particular that struck about that mind mapping and figuring out how you're going to build this up and determining that I've got the audience at a couple of different levels that represents an audience with a couple of different levels asking these questions? One thing that does jump out at me is that to a degree, you can kind of go down this path of introducing ideas and, and you could say, okay, this is a pure function. Great, they can understand what a pure function is. And you could talk about data as immutable and say, okay, we're going to make a copy of it every time we we make a change or have a system do that for us automatically. But there's a point at which you get to where they have no grounding, they have no footing to transfer a concept. And this sometimes comes around functors. Monoids they can get because we can talk about lists and strings and things like that. But functors over lists, okay, we have those in Link, we have those in JavaScript. Functors over a maybe, functors over a promise, functors over you know some sort of channel or or whatever, functors over. I mean, the concept of an I/O operation is a little vague in like a JavaScript environment, but that's where I think people start to go, huh? That seems weird. I don't know why you would want that. I lose people in terms of they don't understand why that might be useful, and I feel like the maybe example usually is the one that they can grasp onto the easiest. But once we move beyond functors, I feel like the understanding really goes downhill. That if you haven't applied that and tried to write code that works this way, you just have nothing to hold on to, really. And that's one of the things I really wanted to encourage in our group was let's write code every month. So every month we meet up and we're going to spend a couple hours and we're going to write some amount of new code and we're going to have actual problems and they're not made up example problems. They're the actual problem of implementing this sort of small use case that we've come up with as a group that we're trying to solve. So driving that home, I think, is really important. And I see a lot of people, just in general, it's really easy to listen to podcasts. I make podcasts, so I hope you listen to my podcast too and and keep listening to Functional Geekery. But if you're not sitting down and writing some amount of code, it is very difficult to internalize some of these concepts. I think you have to sit down and write them and grapple with them. And I mean, the same would be true of like a for loop. I can explain to you what a for loop is and what all the parts are. And you could go, okay, yeah, that kind of makes sense. But unless you've written something that uses a for loop, you will not get a lot of the intricacies of what's going on there. So you have to write that code. And I think that's the biggest problem people have when new to FP is they just aren't writing enough code. 
And as you start the podcast, you've got the different levels for the different voices and the different experience levels. How did you find the reception there? Was that something you found a lot of people are saying, hey, I'm at this beginner level. I hear these things. I either listen to other podcasts, I try and read blog posts, but it kind of goes over my head and I need that voice. Is it a lot of people in the middle that you hear from? Or are there a lot of other people that try and give you feedback from a, that's good, here's some other ways to explain it because we're even, we've been doing this for the 20, 30 years or longer if they're the kind of old school functional programmers who've got into Haskell when it was experimental kind of thing. Yeah, so we have had nothing but positive feedback. So at the beginning, we put it out there, and I was just happy we got any downloads. I was actually kind of shocked that anyone wanted to listen to us ramble on. And our episodes were awful. They were super long. They weren't nearly focused enough. So I apologize in retrospect for that to everyone who's listened to all our episodes from the beginning. We knew what we wanted to do. I had a background in teaching, kind of on the side. I had taught for eight years. I was teaching software engineering. So I had some understanding of what we needed to do and how to get there. But this format and is this going to work? Is this going to resonate with anyone? We really didn't know. And then a couple months in, our viewership numbers just keep going up pretty dramatically. And we start getting feedback from people. And we go through the stuff sort of, okay, this is the real things. So we need to like have a Twitter account now and <laughs> tweet about things and, and whatnot. And we started doing that. And we've continued to get very good feedback. And we started a channel on the FP chat for LambdaCast listeners, and they come in and they post about questions they have, or we have discussions about the episodes. So most of the time, most of the feedback I've gotten has been, I love it. It's great. When's the next episode? <laughs> That's the most common thing I hear is when's the next episode? Because we were very slow at getting episodes out. Although hopefully that's good in that it's reflected and we only do semi-high quality episodes and we're not glued to a schedule. So there are shows for which that is really valuable that you get new content all the time. And we feel like we have to just hold off until we have the right mix and then, then we can do an episode. That's our formula. So when's the next episode is what we hear. And then the next thing is generally about an episode, you know, I didn't understand X or Y, could you cover that again? So we get a lot of tidbits that we then can cover at the beginning of the next episode, go into further clarification, that sort of thing. But it's been very, very positive. I haven't heard from anyone who's sort of a, hey, I've been doing insert X for 20 years and you're going about this all wrong. <laughs> I assume those people exist, uh, probably. Uh, they don't listen to the show or probably don't even care that we exist. So we never hear from them. And we're coming up on time, but I'm wanting to kind of set the stage for, at least before we wrap up, we may go a little bit long. But with the building that community, putting yourselves out there that first time, you said you weren't sure what you were doing what people are looking for, building that community, finding that thing that says, I'm going to share what I understand, even if it's imperfect, and try and get that information out there. And maybe that'll help me learn. Kind of when we were going back and forth, the reason I wanted to especially get you on was as another podcast and kind of the encouragement on my end, probably yours, of other people to go share what they're learning and podcasting. What would you say to someone who's listening either to this episode or to one of yours about putting yourself out there and getting started and just sharing that information and learning on just getting something out there. Sure. A comment that we, we actually do hear fairly often, this probably should have ranked up there with the when's the next episode and, and specific comments on the previous episode is I love the mix of experience that comes up a lot. So Lambda cast would be strictly worse if we didn't have Aaron or Logan or Kat. I should mention that we did get a fourth member. It took kind of what felt like an inordinate amount of time to find our fourth cast member, but we finally found Kat, and we're very happy that she's joined us. But that range of experiences and the overlap and the gaps between us really serves to highlight the kinds of experiences that people who are learning this on their own go through. So if you're somewhere between zero and an expert, there is a population, and the closer you are to beginner, to zero, the larger well, maybe not quite at zero, but a little bit off from zero. There's a large population there. There's very few experts and there's a lot of beginners, just like with almost anything. So if you are a few steps ahead and you can put a hand back and help someone take that one step, you are a good service to your community and you do not need to be an expert. Many of our cast members 
have worried at various times that they did not know enough. And my response to them is always good, because if you knew any more, you wouldn't serve this very important role on the podcast because you could not give voice to the right questions. If you've gotten past an issue, you don't run into the same problems, right? You've internalized the knowledge. So wherever you are at this <laughs> at the spectrum, even if you are day one, I've never touched functional programming, I think it's bunk. If you simply document your experience with functional programming going along, whether you change your mind or not, you're still doing a service to your fellow software engineers. Apart from spreading disinformation, <laughs> stuff that you know to be wrong, I don't think you can really do a, any kind of harm by talking about what you're learning. Now, you might not be a very effective communicator. You might need to work on your communication skills. Certainly, that's a big issue. So think about how you're framing it, how you're presenting it. How can you deliver it in a the smallest, most compact thing, which is something I personally have a lot of trouble with, but aiming for that small, concise version, sort of irreducible version. If you can get that out there, that's a huge benefit because goodness knows we need more advocacy <laughs> amongst functional programming. I try to tell all the people in my meetup, we have a, a local event, the Desert Code Camp, that's been going for a whole bunch of years, like 12 years. And two years ago, they didn't have a functional programming track at all. They kind of break them up like .NET and Ruby and JavaScript and all these kinds of things. And there's a couple FP sessions. There was like a .NET, there's a F-sharp session here, and there was like a JavaScript-y functional session over there. And I was going to run a couple. I was going to run like an intro to functional programming, and then one... I think I call it monoids and functors and monads, oh my. And it's all, you know, Wizard of Oz themed. And so I was going to run those and I was just thinking like, let's get our name out there. So I contacted the organizer and he created a functional programming track and then grouped all of our, our things underneath it. And then I encourage everyone each year to go and just fill this thing. Let's have more sessions than .NET or JavaScript or, or Java or whatever. And so when then people look at it, they go, wow, there's a lot of stuff in functional programming. What's that? That must be a thing. And although that is totally false, right? There's no merit to a topic just because there's a lot of people talking about it. It does something to, that does some work on your fellow programmers. <laughs> it gives some legitimacy to the idea that we're here in numbers and we're not going away and, and there's something here you might want to at least look at. So we need to stay friendly, but there needs to be more stuff about functional programming out there. And yeah, apart from functional geekery, and I think there's a closure-related podcast that has a, that's still going. There's not a lot of functional programming podcasts out there. So if you're thinking of doing one of those, I want to lie to you and tell you it's no work at all. It's super easy, and you should totally do it. And later you can hate me, but do it. And I think that's one of those things that depends on how much effort you want to put in at the beginning. People have asked me, and I've said, well, I went pretty strong with the editing to begin with. So it's one of those after I put it out. I can't go back, but even recommending some of the, even if it's a Google Hangout kind of thing, where you get a couple people and you just put it to Google Hangouts and stream it straight to YouTube, I would recommend just anything that you do, even if it's a discussion with no editing, whatever that barrier is, try and keep that barrier small because you can get away with something without a lot of overhead. Would you agree with that, David? Yes. Although the most important thing is you need to go to where the people are. Don't expect the people to come to you. Go to where they are. So go and show them how to use Ramda or Sanctuary or some JavaScript library that uh, JavaScript is a good place for this because there's so much flexibility and we have pretty good functional libraries in JavaScript. Just showing them how to pipe something. Pipe is sort of the forward version of compose, right? Details aside, if you can show someone how to pipe something, and that sort of necessarily brings on this issue of partial application because most likely the thing that you're piping together are maps and filters. So those need to be partially applied. So now we need to talk about that. It's this very nice setup that you could take some existing code, do a little bit of work on it, get to new code, and someone who's familiar with JavaScript could have followed you the whole way along. They didn't need any pre-work to be set up for that. But at the end, they might be scratching their head going, wow, I didn't even know JavaScript was capable of that. That doesn't look like any JavaScript I've seen, and I really like it. I want to know more about it. So if you can go to where the people are, if you can figure out how to do that same thing for Java or C Sharp or Ruby or whatever, I super encourage people to do that because building our own little awesome floating castles is great, and I love having a floating castle named PureScript and Haskell, but I want more people to be here, and we, we kind of need, like less cool floating castles that people can jump off of to get up to the big Haskell and PureScript ones and whatever your language of choice is. I'm not 
intending to say that Haskell PureScript, the only language is worth considering. I just, my preference is towards pure static functional languages. That's what I find the most value in. Yeah, Idris, I guess, is the the mountain that we can see the, the sun rays coming off of uh, way further up into the clouds. But yeah, going there and bringing them for it, being a bridge is really important, I think. We've touched a bunch of different stuff. We've touched some early advice. If you haven't made the jump yet, really, just to start make, getting your feet wet, dipping your toes in the pond to some of that community building and what you've seen to functional programming to our recommendations at starting something and sharing whatever you're learning. Is there anything we haven't covered or is there any other pieces of advice or call to actions that you want to let people know about that you think is worth mentioning before we start wrapping up the episode? Sure. So the first thing I would say is, regardless of where you're at, there is effectively infinite things to know. And there's been some great posts, some great images that have gone around, various Twitter postings that have gone around, where they show kind of, like Haskell as an example, the Haskell that gets used to like write actual applications, and the Haskell that people talk about, and how those are almost completely unrelated from each other. And that the Haskell that people talk about is the super fancy, amazing stuff. And the Haskell that people use is like the for loop equivalent, just the really meat and potato sort of code. And it's very easy if you look around and you you watch the conference proceedings and the Twitter posts from certain prominent people, not that they're wrong for talking about these things in any way, but their interests are at the very high end, the very sophisticated end, because they are sophisticated practitioners of this. And that is not necessary to be useful and to write programs. I do think that Part of the problem with adoption of something like Caskell or PureScript is that whether you need to know it or not, it's very hard to sometimes determine if you need to know it or not. And in those languages, you are often confronted with topics that feel beyond your ability to grasp at the time. And that is, I think, a legitimate problem. And I don't know how to solve that. And neither of those communities are particularly interested in solving that problem. Well, I define it as a problem. But I think that is one reason that keeps people kind of outside those languages is because as many times as they hear people say, oh, forget all that stuff, you don't need to know it, that feels really bad to certain people. And they can look at a language like JavaScript or C Sharp and say, well, there's none of that kind of stuff here. There's none of this pay no attention to the man behind the curtain, just ignore those, you know, whatever profunctory things or blah, 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 you know, whatever term you might run into where you don't know what's going on. Like they're talking about profunctory lenses instead of Van Larhoven lenses. Why is that even a discussion? What are any of these things? And people go, oh, don't worry about it. You don't need any of that. But if people are talking about it and it's of interest in the community, it feels really hard to not feel like you're missing out because you don't know what these things are. And to be kind of patted on the head and say like, oh, little little Haskell programmer, you don't need to know about that. It doesn't feel great. And I'm not saying that that's the people who are saying, don't worry about that, aren't correct. I think they are correct. You don't actually need that. But it feels weird to be part of a community where you can't understand the stuff and it feels so far to get to it. So that's maybe a bigger problem. That's sort of an educational problem. If we all had decades of experience in functional programming, we would learn about maybe lenses and profunctors and things like that in school, and therefore it wouldn't be a big deal. And then we could just jettison gang of four and design patterns and all that oh stuff and, and make way for this. And we'd be much further down that path and it wouldn't feel out of reach. But the reality of the situation is someone comes in from whatever Ruby or C Sharp or Java and they are confronted with all these ideas and they just get stuck because it feels like there is so many things to learn and they have to know it. So I would encourage those people, yes, I'm going to be one of those individuals who says, don't worry about it, ignore it for now. But I think in a larger sense, we should figure out ways to get around that. And I think Elm does a pretty good job of saying, we're not going to include that stuff so it can never be a problem. Now, that brings on other problems because you kind of put a ceiling on your abstractions that you can build into your language. And there are some definite problems with Elm. But I think it's an interesting sort of data point in a conscious decision to say we're not going to bring in those sort of elements that could be perceived as problematic and what it does to your community. And Elm has been very successful. And I think that is somewhat to the chagrin of people who say, oh, but there's better languages. And I'm not disagreeing that there are sort of objectively better languages, more powerful languages, but they certainly aren't a low-hanging fruit or an easy-to-cross bridge the way Elm is for many people. And so as bad as, from a technical standpoint, as Elm may be in certain aspects, it's actually better than, say, PureScript and Haskell in other aspects. And I don't see a lot of discussion around that. (laughs) 
And people are going to build languages that excite them and make them get out of bed in the morning and do this usually for no pay as a labor of love. So I understand why all these languages are made the way they are. But as a community, we need to, I think, be very sensitive to how do we gently move people into here and not just say, well, suck it up and learn it and suffer through it. And eventually you'll get over it. I think that's a very stigmatizing, polarizing kind of viewpoint that is not going to win us any friends long term or very few. And then aside from the Lambda cast, do you have any resources for functional programming and getting started and getting familiar that you found? either through the Lambda cast that other people have recommended or people asking like, hey, I want to find out more about this or just in your experience of getting into functional programming and in your case as well, the static, strongly typed, pure functional programming. Are there any other resources that we haven't mentioned that you think you would point people to aside from the Haskell book by Chris Allen and Julie Moranuki, the Thomas Pedrick book? that you mentioned earlier on, what are some of those other resources besides those in LambdaCast that you say, if you want to start to get a grasp on these, here's things and places to look at for building that community. Yeah, I would definitely point people to JavaScript. I think if you're going to take a ecosystem that feels friendly and be able to do functional stuff in it, JavaScript's a pretty good place to start. So I would start with something like um, Dr. Boolean's Mostly Adequate Guide to Functional Programming. Go through that. I would take any bit of code you've written Delete the require for lodash or underscore, whatever you're using, or if you're not using anything, replace it with Ramda or Sanctuary, whatever. It doesn't matter. There's differences, sure, but, but they're all better than what you're using right now in terms of functional programming. And start converting over and getting used to thinking in terms of higher order functions, curried functions as the default, and the ability to compose and pipeline things. Just getting down those basic tools, being able to fold slash reduce things, being able to filter things, being able to do all of your different kind of data transformation pipeline type operations. I think that's a fantastic place to start. And just get used to it there in JavaScript, which you may or may not be working with. If you're a web developer, you probably touch it at least a little. So it's an easy way to kind of like bring it in slowly. And if you're using Lodash, there's Lodash slash FP, which is included and bundled in the Lodash NPM module. So you already have it. You can just require a different require and it's still Lodash. And it is more awkward to use than Ramda, but it's already there. So that might be a big selling point if you're at a company that is already using Lodash. So that's one thing that I would have you do. And then the other would be to start explaining things, like try to pass on this knowledge. Now, there's a danger in that where people try to explain things that they don't know yet. So like you mentioned earlier, did I get into this because it forces me to be on a timeline to learn things? And that, that is absolutely true. That is one of the reasons I did it. I would encourage other people to go out and pass this knowledge along, just be aware that know your audience. And if you're, you're going to explain this to people who are not very sympathetic to these ideas, maybe save them for later and find people who are sympathetic to these ideas and explain it first to them and work out your kinks because you have the potential to come off as pretentious or sort of overbearing if you're saying, hey, this is a better way to do things. And they ask you why and you fumble around and you can't quite get terms on it or get a very good understanding of it across. But explain it to other people, I think, and and spreading the word is a fantastic way to learn yourself and to really cement it. Because you'll get challenged. People say, oh, yeah, well, what about blah, blah, blah? And be prepared to go, hmm, I don't know. That seems legit. I don't know how we could get away with not using null here. And then you go away and you, a resource to, to kind of ask these kinds of questions would be the FP chat Slack community. So I would suggest you join that. Or, or another community, there's Elm has its own Slack. I mean, there's lots of functional communities around, there's IRC, but get in some sort of a community where you can ask these questions. And then you go, I was having this discussion with my coworkers, and I suggested we do blah, and they countered with, you know, foo, and I didn't really know what to say. And you'll, you hopefully will get a good, well-reasoned explanation that you can take back and go, okay, I thought about this, you had a very good point, here is my solution to that. And I think being able to say, I don't know, and then come back with an answer shows that you're not sort of a mindless zealot just sort of parroting the things you heard on a conference recording or a, a blog post or something. Go spread the word, but do it in a way that keeps you credible. And then is there anything that you have going on aside from LambdaCast? Is there any conferences that you're going to be attending? I don't know if you're speaking at any or just going as an attendee, even if you're not speaking. Is there any other projects that you're involved with? Playground, libraries, or any other things? Yeah, not a lot. I'm speaking at the Desert Code Camp here in, in Phoenix, Arizona. So if you're in the area, come 
uh, help spread the word on that. Uh, and then I'll be attending LambdaCast next year and uh, MoonConf later this year in Arizona as well. They're coming here. They were in Boulder last year and they'll be in, in Arizona this year. Those are the main things I'm doing and a lot of stuff that I isn't really far enough along to that I want to talk about it. So, And then where are the best places for people to find out and follow you and LambdaCast to keep updated? Sure. I'm dkuntz on Twitter and you can feel free to follow me or DM me there. My direct messages are open, so you can just send me an unsolicited one there. You can follow LambdaCast at LambdaCast.com and also LambdaCast on Twitter. Those are the best places to follow up with that. Or come join us, join the FP Chat Slack community, join the LambdaCast channel, and we'd love to hear from you. And we're happy to talk to you about whatever you're interested in, and especially as it pertains to the episodes we've had. And I know talking with a bunch of people who put out a bunch of other various media or libraries or projects, the odds are low, but is there a blog or other place that you put some of your other learnings and ramblings as you go on versus just being in the LambdaCast channels and FP channels and putting out LambdaCast itself? Is there any place else, that, even if it's sporadic, that you would suggest people to point to to find some of your other sharings and learnings? There is not. There's been talk of doing a LambdaCast blog or at least... Um static site that we can generate through some sort of site generator that hasn't materialized yet so at some point maybe that'll happen it's mostly through direct messaging things like slack irc those sorts of mediums sounds good i wanted to make sure we weren't leaving any resources for you left unmentioned and once again thank you david for taking your time to join me today it was a pleasure talking with you i've been listening to lambda cast pretty early on i know i've caught all the episodes i believe from going back and even downloading if i missed the first couple as it came out but Interesting to hear about your background and what got you into LambdaCast and where you are on your programming journey, aside from you sharing your experience with the others, but help build up of how you got to where you are today and sharing this. So thanks for taking your time and joining me today. And thank you, Proctor, for putting on Functional Geekery. This was absolutely one of the earliest sort of alternative mediums that I ran across, apart from blog posts. And it is one of the influences that led to LambdaCast. So LambdaCast owes its existence to your podcast. Well, thank you. And... I think I would just reiterate, maybe one of us can start spawning up more influences and we can spread that community even further down the line. That would be fantastic. Yes. So pleasure talking with you. And we'll, I'm sure we'll keep in touch either in the FP community Slack or online and maybe even get you back on and we can share as things have progressed and we've both gone on and continued our learning journey together. So thanks for taking your time to join me today. That'd be great. Thank you. Until next time, this has been Functional Geekery.